Good evening, church. I'm going to preach from Hebrews chapter 2 this evening, verses 9 through 11. Let me read those for us now and let me pray again. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Let me pray. O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we unite our hearts together this evening, and we thank you for the distinct but unified way that you've worked together for our salvation. Father, thank you for your grace that initiated this work. Lord Jesus, thank you for your glad submission to the Father's will in tasting death for us. And Holy Spirit, thank you for taking the good news of the gospel and applying it to our hearts, quickening us, awakening us to respond to you with faith. And I pray that tonight you would help us to taste the sweetness of what Christ has accomplished for us, what you, Father, Son, and Spirit have done on our behalf. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Plenty of people die for their king. Countless soldiers in countless wars have died for their kings. Plenty of people die for their king. My king died for his people. Is he your king? Bunny Long is 105 years old, and he's been a member of our church family since 1947. And he told me this week that when your physical condition fails, you don't really fear death anymore. He said, you only look forward to the everlasting life that Jesus has purchased for us. You hunger for all the things to be made new. You are eager for the momentary sorrows and the fleeting pleasures of this life to be replaced with unending joy and rest from sin. Now, I mentioned Bunny for a few reasons. First, we need to regularly hear testimonies from older saints. We need to follow and watch their example of dying while resting in Jesus. But the second reason I mention this is because of something I heard another pastor say. Death is one of Christianity's more compelling arguments. Everyone who walks this earth knows that death comes for us all. We all know that. And Christians steward the hope that the world needs to face death. 
And what delivers hope to Bunny and to all of us who are in Christ is that our King died on behalf of His people. Jesus tasted the full measure of death so that we merely experience death's glancing blow. Jesus tasted death for us so that we could close our eyes in death only to open them again in the presence of God. Take heart. Jesus tasted death for us so that he could bring us safely home. Here's two realities that Jesus' death secures. Jesus died to taste death for everyone, and Jesus died to bring us safely home. Look at verse 9 again of Hebrews chapter 2. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and with honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Notice where verse 9 begins. It says that for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels, which tells us that before this little while and after this little while, Jesus would no longer be lower than the angels. This was a, a moment in time. And so we should remind ourselves who we're talking about here. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. John's gospel tells us that Jesus is the eternal word of God. And at the beginning of creation, Jesus exists with God. Paul picks up this thread in Colossians 1, where we learn that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that all things are created through Jesus and for Jesus. It's true of creatures in heaven, and it's true of creatures on earth. It's true of visible creatures and invisible ones. It's true of all thrones, all dominions, all rulers, and all authorities. And in the Old Testament, Jesus is not merely promised and predicted. He's also present. In Genesis 16, Jesus comes to Hagar as the angel of the Lord to promise her help. In Genesis 22, it's Jesus that stops Abraham from sacrificing his beloved son Isaac. In Exodus 3, Jesus appears to Moses again as the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, calling Moses to go back to Egypt. Jude 5 assures us that it was Jesus who redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. 1 Corinthians 10 makes it clear that Jesus was the rock in the wilderness that sustained Israel. And in John 12, Jesus makes it clear that he is the king that Isaiah saw in his vision of the temple. Here's a sentence from our statement of faith. In the unity of the Godhead, that is the Trinity, there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. And it was this Jesus who we read of in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. And so this Jesus equal with the Father, eternal in the heavens, agrees to be made lower than the angels 
for a little while. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that he does this by taking on flesh. Jesus doesn't give up divine attributes. Jesus takes on human ones. And what happens when he does? Hebrews 2 tells us that when Jesus does this, he's crowned with glory and with honor specifically because of the suffering of death. The humble act of lowering himself below the angels has death as its aim. That's Jesus's objective. That's why God crowns him with honor and with glory. When Jesus, the eternal son of God, experiences the humility humiliating agony of death, that's when he receives the most glory. Jesus doesn't simply come to earth. He doesn't simply take on flesh to speak for God as a prophet, though he does. Jesus doesn't take on flesh to merely serve as our example, though he is. Jesus's aim is to suffer and to die. The question is why? For what purpose has he come to die? Because the wages of sin, that is the consequence, that is the penalty of sin for sinners, is death. And by the grace, that is the kindness, the gift, the favor of God, because of God's favor and kindness, Jesus might taste death for everyone. That's Jesus' objective to become lower than the angels for a time in order that he might suffer and die in the place of God's people. Jesus absorbs the hurricane winds of death so that it only blows lightly in our face. Jesus steps in front of the freight train of death so we receive only a glancing blow as it barrels past. Jesus drinks every drop of the foaming poisonous wine of God's wrath before handing us the empty cup. Jesus is like the animal who dies in the garden so Adam and Eve can be clothed by God. Jesus is like the ram who dies on the mountain instead of Isaac. Jesus is like the lamb slaughtered in Egypt instead of the firstborn children. Jesus is like the countless animals sacrificed instead of God's people. Except the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. The blood of animals can't satisfy or propitiate, is the theological word, God's wrath. But Jesus can. And in Hebrews 9, verse 26, we read this. Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of time, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, a sign that they are his. Hebrews 9, God makes it clear that unless Jesus returns before, then we will all die. And that after death comes judgment. It's a universal truth. It's true of all of us. 
And Jesus tasted death in the place of every man, woman, or child who turns from their sins and trusts him. Here's the question for you. Have you trusted Christ? Have you turned from your sin and have you trusted him? Will you let Jesus taste death for you? Will you let him drain the cup of God's wrath in your place so that you don't need to drink even one drop? So that you may close your eyes briefly in death only to open them again in God's presence. And if you make that your hope, not even death can separate us from the love of Christ. Death still stings. Death is the most painful thing in creation. But there will come a day when all those who are in Christ will declare death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15. Because on that day, on that future day, death will be the final enemy destroyed by Jesus. He will take death and he will throw it into the lake of fire and it will be no more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have all passed away. Revelation 21. Jesus died to taste death for all of us. But Revelation 21 tells us that he did more than that. In the second place, Jesus died to bring his people safely home. And that's verses 10 and 11 of Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 10 again. For it was fitting, it was right, that he, that is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What's God's goal in having Jesus taste death for everyone who believes? What's the goal? What's the goal of Jesus tasting death for us? God longs to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And by glory, we mean both a place and a status. Two things. A place and a status. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them in his father's house. But he will come again from that place so that he can bring them back to that place where he is. Jesus predicts a time when his people will be safely home in God's house, where everlasting rest in God's kingdom is a reality, where sin's presence is not felt, where pain and grief and tears and death are put away, and we will be safely home in glory. But bringing many sons and daughters to glory is also a status. It's not just a place where we will go. It is also a reality of who we are. It's a status. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, God's gracious, kind initiative doesn't just predestine and foreknow and call. 
And Jesus' humble, heroic death doesn't merely justify us, that is, declare us righteous. It glorifies us too. It's a status. Jesus died to bring us safely home. He has purchased for the church a glorious righteousness that will be ours. We'll be clothed in white, as Matt directed us last week, signifying our righteousness. And we will wave palm branches in our hands, signaling our victory. Ephesians 5 tells us that Jesus will do this. He will sanctify us by the washing of the word. That he might sanctify her, that Jesus might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. To bring many sons and daughters to glory is to bring them to a place and to bring them with a status. So here's the picture of the future church. A bride dressed in pristine wedding garments, safely at home with the bridegroom. Complete rest from the effects of sin in the world and in our hearts. And notice that the author says that it's fitting It's right that God the Father should do this through the suffering service of God the Son. Why is it fitting that God should bring sons and daughters to glory through the suffering service of His Son? Why is that right? Why is that fitting? Because we've been broken and tarnished. We are not glorified. We are marred by our sin. We are dead in our sins. And God, for whom all and by whom all things exist, should bring us to glory through a suffering servant. Take those who are suffering in their sin through a suffering servant and bring them to glory. It's fitting that God should do it that way. He enters our brokenness and our rebellion. He absorbs the penalty of death for our sins. And by his death, this victorious, glorious, heroic death, we are made right. Jesus' death produced glory. It overwhelmingly conquered. And so Jesus is rightly the founder, the fountainhead, the cause of our salvation. Our salvation has Jesus as its source. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So hear this, discouraged Christian. Hear this if you're struggling with brokenness. Hear this if you're filled with shame over your own sin, your own ongoing struggle with sin, your past sins. Hear this. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers. He's not ashamed of you. Are you despairing over your ongoing struggle against your stubborn sin nature? Are you struggling with flashes from the past of your rebellion against him? Jesus is not ashamed to call you brothers or sisters. He's not. Do you struggle to make eye contact with him? Do you struggle to lift your heart to pray or to lift your voice to sing? He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He who sanctifies and we who are sanctified have one source. We are not saved by our own righteousness. 
We are saved and we are delivered safely home through one source, that is His blood. His sufficient, glorious death is the foundation of our salvation. And that frees us to joyful, earnest, sincere obedience. And when we sin, it leads us to genuine repentance. Here's Hebrews 13 before we close. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people. How? How are we to be sanctified? Through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek glory and we long to be glorified. Plenty of people die on behalf of their king. My king died on behalf of his people. Is he your king? The death we honor tonight on Good Friday is a heroic death. It's a death that accomplished salvation. It's a death that purchased redemption. Here's John's gospel in chapter 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, and so they put a sponge full of of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. In his final moments, Jesus, John tells us, knowing that all was fulfilled, knowing that all was now finished, thinking through the prophecies that he had come to fulfill, thinking through the work that he had come to accomplish. He's thinking about those things in his final moments, and he knows that it is now finished. He's done all he's needed to do to fulfill Scripture. And then after taking a drink, he says it's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave his spirit up. And as Mitchell said earlier, No one took his life from him. Jesus gave his life freely. And the life that he gave up freely was effective and glorious. The life that he gave up satisfied God's anger. Matthew 27, verse 51, Matthew records that, Behold, right after he gives up his spirit, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The temple curtain signifying the separation between God's presence and God's people is torn in two, signifying the sufficiency and the effectiveness of Jesus's death on the cross. It is finished was not just the moment that he gives up his spirit. It is also the moment signifying that the work that he came to do is done, that he has tasted death for all of us. That curtain being torn is an invitation, come now into God's presence with great joy because of Christ's blood on your behalf. Oh, church, take heart. Jesus died to taste death for all of us so that he could bring us safely home. The man of sorrows has been crowned with glory and honor. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice at your victory. You've done for us what we could have never done for ourselves. I pray that you would cause 
us to remember this weekend that the first domino to fall that put all these weekend events into place was the love of a great God. It was the rich mercy of a great God who took a step toward a sinful humanity and through the brokenness of our Savior invites us home. Give us rest in our souls. Give us joy in our salvation. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.